0: Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. As uh, Aaron has already reminded us through Scripture and through song, This is Palm Sunday on the Christian calendar, that Sunday in the year when we celebrate the fact that Jesus did ride into Jerusalem that last time to celebrate Passover with his disciples. It is called Palm Sunday because, of course, as you saw in the scripture there from Matthew, uh, some laid their cloaks down before him, others cut branches off of the trees, and so we take that to be palm branches, and they laid them in the road before him all of which was a sign of royalty fit for the entrance of a king. And again, the cry that we've heard from Matthew, that they were repeatedly shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then from that Sunday until the next Sunday when we celebrate Easter, the resurrection of Christ, there were, of course, a lot of events that took place. The crucifixion and the resurrection, the culmination of that week, and we will strive to highlight some of those, especially on Thursday night as we gather together for this uh, last hour service at 6.30. And then following that, we will gather next Sunday for the high point of the Christian calendar, the celebration of Easter Sunday. But this morning, I do not want to focus our attention on the last hours of Jesus's life, nor on what we might consider to be the last occasion where he showed himself and told himself to be the Messiah. Though, of course, even their shouting of praise to him was misunderstood because they did not know what kind of Messiah he was and is. But instead, I want to turn our attention to What is perhaps the first time in his ministry where he clearly told a crowd that he was and is the Messiah. Now to do that, we have to travel 65 miles north of Jerusalem to the small town of Nazareth. You've heard of that town because it is the town in which Jesus came from. Mary and Joseph were residents of Nazareth. They were forced to leave to go to Bethlehem for the census. We go over this every Christmas. And so Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but his parents were from Nazareth. And after a brief time fleeing in Egypt, that is where Jesus returned and where he was raised. But we're not going to talk about his childhood this morning because actually we don't know very much about those formative years, those early years of his life. Instead, we are going to talk about an incident that took place at the very early times of his ministry. So picture the scene with me. Jesus by now has been ministering for a brief period of time, maybe even upwards of a year throughout Galilee and Judea. He had performed some miracles at Capernaum. He had changed the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And word of all of this has gotten back to his hometown of Nazareth. And now he is going to return for a visit And so you can just imagine the buzz on the city streets, this hometown boy who has gone off and done all kinds of miraculous things. He is coming home for a visit. Everyone is talking about it, and now they are anticipating his arrival. So when the Sabbath rolls around, everyone knows that Jesus is going to be in the temple on that Saturday, and so they want to be there as well. Perhaps he will share some words of wisdom. Perhaps maybe he will even heal some of their diseases like he's done in these other places. And so the temple or the synagogue that morning is standing room only. There are people everywhere. And a hush falls over the crowd as Jesus stands up to read. Standing was the customary position in which to read, which is why some people do still stand when the word of God is read in churches, though interestingly enough, they would sit down to teach, which most people do not do today. And so it's just a cultural tradition. But Jesus stood up to read in the synagogue. He was handed a scroll. That scroll was from the prophet Isaiah. Jesus opens the scroll and he finds Isaiah chapter 61. And this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls the scroll back up. He sits down. And again, I think there's a hush over the crowd. And then Jesus says these words. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What? Wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's boy, the carpenter? I mean, didn't we buy something from him last year? We know his brothers and sisters. This man is just one of us. Is he really now claiming to be the fulfillment of that which Isaiah said some seven centuries before he was even born? And so a brief dialogue ensues. That dialogue began with the crowd marveling at his words, but that crowd soon turned, and they became angry. They drove him out of the synagogue, intending to throw him off of a cliff. So in this first time, seemingly, that Jesus claims to be the Messiah, they want to kill him. Something, of course, we know will happen later in Jerusalem. So Isaiah chapter 61 is our text this morning, and we are going to look at the Messiah's ministry. Isaiah chapter 61. Obviously, I'm going to read the first verse and a half again. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations, They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the people's. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they, are offspring, that they are offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Now we're going to begin in the first two verses where we'll see that the Messiah arrives. Obviously, we've already seen from Luke's version that Jesus attributes this passage to himself. And so we are going to read it that way as well, though, of course, there are elements in here that were initially going to be applied to the Jews and their return from Jerusalem or to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity. But ultimately, this entire chapter is about the saving ministry of the Messiah. The Spirit of God was upon him. And in the Old Testament, we know that the Spirit of God came upon people for power and strength to perform certain functions. Now, we know, of course, that the Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism because a dove came down. Now, the dove was not the Spirit. The Bible says, like a dove, and so the dove was an external symbolic way of being able to see that the Spirit had descended upon Jesus, and therefore he was anointed to bring the good news, the word gospel a word that we use so often as in our responsibility to share the gospel or the gospel of Luke. We use that word a lot, but literally that word means good news. So the Messiah has arrived in order to announce the good news. But you might have noticed that it appears that good news is to be restricted to a certain class of people. That is, he is to announce the good news to the poor. Now, we've talked several times in this Isaiah series about the message of salvation is to go out indiscriminately. That is, we are to proclaim it to all. There are no distinctions. There are no classes. There are no divisions. All need to hear the gospel, and therefore it should be proclaimed to all, which seems like a contradiction when we come to this verse, and it says, announce the good news to the poor. But it only seems that way because of the way we use the word poor we use that word to speak almost exclusively of those who lack financial resources. That is, we use it to refer to those who do not have material blessings. But the Bible uses it in a much broader way. For example, in the Beatitudes section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, "'Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God.'" So likewise, the word poor here in Isaiah talks about anyone and everyone who is broken by life, discouraged and in despair, and ultimately with no heart to even go on or keep on trying, which in effect applies to all of us, though of course many people never actually recognize this about themselves. But it is something we must recognize in order to be saved. And then of course in some of the terminology here, you certainly see the earthly ministry of Jesus. In his healing of those who had physical diseases, in the binding of the heart, in the loosing of the captives. Though again, this does not refer to criminals and releasing them from prison. There are instances in the New Testament of some of the followers of Jesus being miraculously released from prison. And certainly that could apply to the Jews being released in the future from Babylonian captivity But the broader application here is the spiritual sense in which all of us have been captive to sin, which is why Jesus can say, you shall know the truth, and it is the truth that will set you free. So the good news is an announcement of release, being set free from the bondage of sin. And that's what the phrase there means when it says the the day or the year of the Lord's favor. We might call it the day of salvation. Or the day of redemption, all of those things mean the same things. Jesus is announcing that salvation has come and it is offered to all. But now did you notice that when I initially read from Luke's gospel, what Jesus said in the synagogue in Nazareth, he stopped in the middle of verse 2. He did not read all of verse 2. He stopped after the phrase I've just referenced, the year of the Lord's favor. He did not go on and say, and the day of the vengeance of our God. So why did Jesus stop in the middle of that verse? Well, some would say that this is evidence that the Old Testament God is a God of vengeance and the New Testament God is a God of love that Jesus came to announce a love relationship and therefore he didn't read the second half. But certainly we understand that that can't be the case because the Old Testament God is the New Testament God. There is no distinction. So the reason he stopped is because when Jesus came the first time, when the Messiah arrived, he was announcing that salvation had come. Jesus himself said later, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. However, when this era is over with and Jesus comes a second time, he will bring judgment upon those who are opposed to him and who deny him. He certainly speaks of judgment elsewhere. So just because he did not read this phrase on that occasion does not mean that he is opposed to judgment. For he speaks of it elsewhere, and he very plainly says, when he comes the second time, he will bring judgment. So we are in the era of salvation, where Jesus arrives and announces that salvation has come. But when he comes again, to those who reject that offer, he will come with a message of judgment. And that last phrase in verse 2, the comforters, or those who mourn shall be comforted, might appear a strange one to follow, but it is connected. Again, mourning is not just confined to those who are grieving the loss of a loved one. I could appeal to the Sermon on the Mount once again. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And Jesus is not talking there about those who have recently lost someone in death. He's talking about those who mourn their sin, and therefore they will be comforted by salvation. He's talking about those who are mourning what is going on in their lives, and there would be a certain sense of comfort that would come to them when those who have oppressed them will be judged by God. I need to make one more point here before we move on. The Messiah arriving has brought the good news of the gospel, and it is not now our responsibility to share that good news, but there is one huge distinction You see, I can share the good news even as I'm trying to do this morning. But you understand that I am not the good news. Now, I know that a lot of you think very highly of me, and that might shock you. But I'm not the good news. I'm just sharing it. But when Jesus came, he was not only sharing the good news, he is, in fact, the good news. He himself is the one who comes bringing salvation, announcing to all that the Messiah has arrived. So what does the Messiah do? Well, the remainder of this text, most of it, down through verse 9, is dealing with the Messiah's ministry. That's the title. But the the word we can tie together, all of this ministry, is the fact that it transforms. The ministry of the Messiah transforms. The bulk of this passage is descriptive of what he does in those whom he saves. And the word transformation is a key word that pulls all of it together, talking about the fact that he changes those he saves. Now, I do not have the time to go into every detail that is listed here, so I'm just going to hit the high notes. We've already mentioned that comfort will come to those who mourn, and this theme continues in verse 3. But it's not just comfort. It is the transformation from comfort to rejoicing. Gladness will replace mourning. Transformation is not just about the removal of things that trouble us, but a transformation always involves a removal to something more positive. So yes, it is removing that which we mourn, but transforming us into something else, something much better. And here again, mourning is not reserved for those who have lost a loved one. I've already mentioned mourning over our sin We could certainly also mourn the sad state of affairs in our world, the violence, the injustice, the hatred, the racism, and on and on, the list could go. But verse 8, God says very clearly, I am a God who loves justice, and therefore we know that ultimately God is going to put all things right. And while that may not make our life easier now, by faith we believe, and therefore we can find comfort in the transformation that is going to come but having found comfort resulting in praise rather than mourning, we are then pictured as strong and enduring trees. Again, obviously this was directly applicable to the Israelites during their time in Babylon, but it is equally applicable as we struggle through this sin-cursed world in which we live. But not only do we see a transformation from mourning to comfort, we also see a transformation from ruins to being rebuilt. And obviously, this is applicable when they come back from Babylon and they return to Jerusalem and they begin to rebuild the city and they rebuild the temple. And then, of course, all of those things are going to be destroyed again. And yet, even to this day, in spite of countless catastrophic persecutions against the Jewish people, Jerusalem remains an area where people live and thrive. And it is not just cities and buildings that are rebuilt. It is lives being put back together that we see here. And so the imagery speaks of the the people and their newfound status with God resulting in a new relationship, not only with God, but a new relationship with other people, living in peace side by side with others rather than conflict, being free rather than being in slavery. And all of them then becoming priests, God says they're all going to be priests, not just the tribe of Levi, but all of them will now be priests and ministers of God. Now the word priest is not a word that we use very often in our Protestant churches. We want to separate ourselves from the Catholics and their doctrine, and so we tend not to use the word priest. Sadly, that word, because of Other things, scandals that have happened has a negative image for a lot of people. And so you might think to yourself, well, I'm sure glad he called the Israelites priest and not me. I don't want to be a priest. But if you are a believer, it it applies to you indirectly here, but Peter applies it to us directly. Peter is obviously writing to New Testament believers, and he says of us, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. So in some sense, every believer is a priest, not in the sense of the duties that we find of a priest in the Old Testament, but in the sense of our ability to come before God. We don't need a priest to be a mediator for us. Jesus is our great high priest, so we can go through him. It is why we Baptists have a doctrine that maybe you've heard of. It's called the priesthood of every or all believers. And it's a doctrine we as Baptists hold dear, the priesthood of every believer. And what that means is, not that you don't need pastors and teachers, as it has been wrongly applied through the years, but it's just a way of saying that you and I don't go through a priest other than Jesus, we don't go through a human priest in order to have access with God, because Jesus is our high priest, and therefore there is no distinction, there is no class within the church. There is really no distinction between laity and and the, the, the priesthood. We're all priests. We all have access to God through Jesus. Therefore, we are all ministers of God. And then we find the third aspect of this transformation is that shame is replaced with joy. Comfort given to those who mourn. Rebuilt lives to those whose lives have been ruined. And now joy, which sounds a whole lot better than shame, has replaced that which was before. And multiple times it said here, this is going to be done in a double portion. I don't expect you to remember this, but back a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 40, we saw that God said they were getting a double punishment for their sin. And now multiple times in this text, God says they're going to get a double portion when they return and they are restored, a double portion of blessings, the blessings of the new covenant. Jeremiah speaks of that covenant as being written on our hearts rather than on stone. Now a covenant is an agreement between two parties, signed and ratified in some sort of way. And there are multiple covenants in the Old Testament. We actually looked at one two weeks ago from chapter 55, where he talked about the covenant of David, That is the promise of of a descendant of David on the throne forever and how the Messiah came and fulfilled that covenant, ratifying it by sitting on the throne eternally. There are other covenants in the Old Testament, a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with Moses, a covenant with Noah. But the trouble with all of those covenants is that the people always broke them. But this new covenant will be an everlasting covenant, one which will not be broken because the terms are everlasting, because God is going to see to it that it remains. Resulting in Israel being known, the descendants of Israel being known, and their distinction evident to all. Meaning that people will know that God has blessed them, and as a result, they will be attracted to coming to God themselves, rather than serving their own useless gods. We are made to be mirrors, that is, God has saved us in order that through us he might glorify himself, that people will look at us and see the blessings of God and praise him as a result. Think about this for a moment. Where are all the ites that we read about in the Old Testament? You say, what's he talking about, the ites? You know those those people in the Old Testament that you skim over their names because you don't know how to pronounce it, and even if you do know how to pronounce it, you don't know who they are. The Jebusites, the Parasites, the Gergesites. Did I say that one wrong or something? I don't think I did, but you think I did. Now I don't know what the otherites were. The Hittites, the Amorites. Where are all these people? They're all gone having been either absorbed into other nations or extinguished altogether. For that matter, where are the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the two nations that conquered the northern and southern kingdoms or nations of Israel? They too are no longer around. They are mere footnotes in history. And yet here we are after all of these years, still talking about Israel and the Jewish people in spite of the horrific crimes committed about them through the, committed against them through the centuries reminding us that it is god who determines what nations and it is god who determines what peoples continue and which ones disappear into history which means our faith must be in god and not in anyone or anything else Likewise, it is God who establishes the church, it is God who calls his people, and it is God who is building us, his people, into a kingdom of priests. I hear people bemoaning sometimes and saying things like, you know, this just might spell the end of the church. I mean, if we keep going in this direction, or if this law passes, or this person gets elected, the church might cease to exist. Now, I am not saying that, that we will not face persecution, maybe even severe persecution in a country where most of us thought it would never happen. And neither am I saying that the people we elect nor the laws that they enact are not important. They certainly are. But I remind you that Jesus told Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, that does not mean that individuals, individual churches will not close. They do and they will continue to do so. But speaking of the overall church, Jesus has promised that it is going to continue. There is no political party, there is no unlawful law that can change that. And we are reminded of that when we see that the Jewish people have continued and all of these other nations that surrounded them are long gone. Like we've seen elsewhere in Isaiah, some of what we are looking at remains to be fulfilled in the future kingdom of God. But there are certainly foretastes here giving us hints and therefore increasing our longing to see this entire picture fulfilled. By faith, we trust that God made these sweeping promises and therefore he will one day bring them to pass where all of our mourning will be turned into comfort. All of our ruined lives will be rebuilt and all of our shame and dishonor for the sin we've committed will be transformed into joy as we praise the one who made it all possible. Which leads us to the last two verses where we see the Messiah rejoices. The big question in these last two verses is who's speaking. If you notice the the first word in verse 10, I, we, we go to the first person singular now. And so who is it that is speaking? There are basically two options here. One, it is the Messiah speaking as he has continued to speak throughout this chapter. And I think that's the most likely thing here. Though some commentators take this to mean uh, Zion, that is Israel, as a collective whole, is speaking together here. But whichever one we take, and you can tell by my title, The Messiah Rejoices, that I'm taking it to be the Messiah still speaking here. We do know that the topic of what is being spoken of is rejoicing over salvation. And so there's going to be application that's going to be true either way. But I'm taking it to be that the Messiah is, rejoices, is rejoicing. He is rejoicing because he's been given the garments of salvation and is covered with the robe of righteousness. And as we'll see in a moment, these figurative garments are what he passes out to those he he saves. Now, you've probably had the experience, as I have, of being in a restaurant and a group of young ladies come in. And instantly you know that this is a bridal party, right? You can just tell by the way they're acting that that this is a, a group of ladies that are involved in a wedding. And so if you're like me, you start trying to figure out which one is the bride, right? You you start looking around. Tracy and I will start talking like, which one do you think it is? Is it that one? Is it that one? And we'll try to figure out who the bride is. Now, sometimes they give us a hint. Sometimes she's got a sash that says bride across her front. Sometimes for some strange reason, she's wearing some tiara, tiara in her head. Or maybe she's got a t-shirt on that says bride and all the other girls have a, a different shirt on. And so we try to figure out who the bride is. But now when you come to the wedding, there's none of that, right? I mean, nobody at the wedding is guessing who the bride is. There's, there's no conversation at the wedding as to which one of these ladies is the bride. It's clearly not any of the ones that are in the hideous dress that the bride has picked out to further make her stand out from everybody else. So we know it's not them. It is, in fact, the one that is in the white dress that everyone is making a fuss over. And of course, to a lesser extent, the groom is set apart because his tie is different or his cummerbund is different or or something of that nature. The point being that the clothes are distinctive and they mark off the bride and the groom as being different from the rest. Not to mention all the great care that they go into, especially the bride, the many hours that she puts in, in her clothing and her appearance, getting ready for the big day. Now, none of this has anything to do with what you and I wear to church on Sunday morning. I am not about to go off on a random tangent to say that we ought to take the same kind of care in what we dress in when we come to church, because this has nothing to do with that. Instead, it is talking about far greater things, not our external clothing at all, but rather the garments of salvation. This is a pictorial way to describe the rejoicing of the Messiah over those who have been saved and the necessity of his righteousness in those whom he saves. Now, we tend to spend more time talking about the turning away aspect of salvation, that we must repent of our sins and turn away from it, and rightfully so. But as I said earlier, transformation involves not only a turning away from something, but a turning to something. And in this case, it is a turning away from sin and a turning toward Christ. And as we turn toward Christ, we are clothed in His righteousness rather than sin. Not our own righteousness because that's work salvation, but the righteousness of Christ. And so Jesus, the Messiah, is rejoicing in the fact that he has the garments of salvation and he is giving those garments to those who accept him. And through salvation, God will cause us to grow in righteousness and praise before all the nations, even as the flowers are beginning to poke their head out of the soil and spring forth in beauty. So God's people are said to rise up in beauty to glorify him. Jesus told a parable on one occasion about a wedding that a king threw for his son. And so the king sends out the invitations, even as we would, to the the ones that he deemed worthy to come to this royal wedding for his son. But they do not respond. So he sends servants out a second time with the announcement that the, the banquet is ready. The time is now, and the people need to come, but the people still don't come. Instead, some of them say that they have better things to do, like tending to their own farms. And in fact, some of them actually uh, shame the servants who have invited them. Some of them even kill the servants who have invited them. And as you can imagine, this infuriates the king. And so he is very angry. And he says to his servants, I want you to go out and I want you just to invite anybody and everybody you see to come to the wedding. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter what stage or, or, or section of life they're in. Just anyone you see on the street, invite them to the wedding. And as you can imagine, the wedding hall is now filled to capacity. There are people everywhere. And the king comes in and he notices that there is a guest at the wedding who does not have the wedding garments on. Now keep in mind that this does not imply that this particular individual was too poor to purchase the garments. The king had obviously given out the garments to everybody that had come because none of them were worthy to be there. And so the king had distributed the garments to everybody but for some reason this one man, evidently in outright rejection, Had simply said, I do not want the garments and refused to wear them. And so the king had him removed from the wedding. Now, again, that's a parable. So it's really not about a wedding at all because the parable begins the kingdom of God is like. So the story is told to tell us something about the kingdom of God. And what it's told to tell us is that everyone in the kingdom must have the proper garments. And those garments are freely provided by the King, they are the righteousness of Christ. But if you refuse those garments, there is no room for you in the kingdom. But if you accept those garments, you are freely part of the kingdom. So the invitation has gone out. The banquet is ready. The question is, are you going to put other things aside and come to the kingdom, or, And do you simply have better things to do? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the free gift of salvation, that the Messiah has arrived announcing the year of the Lord's favor, that the invitation has gone out to any and all that Jesus saves, and that he does so through his work on Calvary, which we will remember this week. Lord, I pray that we would freely accept your garments of salvation, the righteousness of Christ, rather than try to earn our own way or work our own way, that we would would accept what you've provided and rejoice in your salvation. I know that many listening or watching have already done that. And so I pray that this would be a week where we are reminded of all you went through in order to save us and that we might gather again next Sunday rejoicing in our risen Savior who saves. is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.